Episode 7 of Movie Mumble, the monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where we seek to broaden our cinematic horizons. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and today I'm joined by my... <laughs> my uh, Why are you I laughing? I think of a life aquatic-related descriptor. Uh, devoted frogman? Devoted frogman, Joel Lewis. Howdy. And Tim Gerard. Hello. I like that, Joel. Well done. <laughs> For those of you unfamiliar with Movie Mumble, it's a monthly podcast where we get together, watch a film, and then talk about it. That's pretty much it. The goal is to introduce ourselves to new films, genres, styles, and themes. So we each take turns picking a film to watch, whether it's one we already know and love or something completely new and unfamiliar, then watch it together in the hope that we find unexpected new joys along the way. There aren't really any rules about which films we can pick. They can be foreign or domestic, live action or animated, new or old, famous or obscure, anything at all. After we've watched each movie, we talk about it and see where that leads us. Whether it's discussing the, the film itself, its context or production, talking about our own personal movie memories, or something else altogether. At the end of each podcast, we will also announce what we'll be watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. Keep in mind, we will be spoiling everything we talk about, so if you're worried about that sort of thing, you'll want to watch a podcast's film before you listen to the podcast. This month, Joel was our movie selector, and he picked The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. And the with Steve Zizou part is part of the title. <laughs> uh, we used to start off with asking Joel why you picked the film, but we now have our fancy new coin toss trick. Joel has this beautiful, gorgeous Morgan coin. Silver, silver Dollar. Mm-hmm. Circa nine, or 1896. Wow. Mm, makes Shit. a great sound when you uh, flip it. And um, he's going to flip it. One of us, either me or Tim, is going to call it in the air. And yeah, how do we decide who calls it? Is that there, will determine who gives their impression of the film. Right. Partly for actual summary purposes and partly for comedy purposes. We want someone who <laughs> is mo- No, we did it because I liked the sound of the flipping coin on the, okay. the copy. That, that's point the is, main we reason. want someone who's not the film picker to give their impression. <laughs> right. Len will ask Joel, why do you bring this to us? So, Tim, I think we just pick on the fly who calls it in the air. Okay. Um, so I think, Scott, if you'll call it in the air this time. We thought we had a... Didn't we have a rotation on that, too? I don't think. Or maybe because so you're the next one who's picking a... Fi- who's, it's your film next, so you call it, and then you'll flip it, and I'll call it. Maybe something like that's that. That's what I think I, it let's was. Let's do that. Yeah. 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 So, okay, I'll, I'll run the call. You hear that, listeners? You're hearing the podcast evolve. Right before your very ears. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> so was I. Hey, we've melded I said into it one first. <laughs> first. We've one movie mumble being. <laughs> Alrighty. Coin we toss. Tails. It is heads. Uh, so, Tim, you get to either summarize the film. Or make me or summarize I'm going to make it. Scott summarize it. Yeah, right. Thank you. I'm actually glad you did that. Um, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou is a Wes Anderson film. Which, for those of you who are familiar with his work, that just that means something to you. Mm-hmm. For those of you who aren't, uh, 
he's another director sort of like Tarantino or Polanski or um, oh god Boyle who when you say their name it evokes certain thing. there are certain things about the film stylistically and storytelling wise that will almost be a certainty specifically aesthetically with mm-hmm. Wes yeah, yeah some of us you know him when you see him aesthetics in particular color palettes cinematography sets that sort of thing symmetry yeah. right <laughs> no kidding um, <laughs> color palette in particular there's a lot of uh, pastel yes, sort sir. of even tone shift, very smooth blending. And mm-hmm. I I don't know. I find it hard to describe just how much I love his cinematography and his mm-hmm. sets. But that's not what I'm doing. I should be describing the film. <laughs> and so this one is about Bill Murray plays Steve Zizou, a, an oceanographer, pioneering ocean explorer and filmmaker. Sort of a fictionalization of Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. You know, and, and that was intended with the film. Right. Who's becoming or maybe already is a bit washed up hmm. and his best friend is killed by some creature he calls it the jaguar shark Esteban Esteban and uh, so he vows revenge against this creature and he gathers together his crew plus the little peripheral hangers on and misfits plus some unpaid interns <laughs> plus <laughs> Owen Wilson <laughs> plus a reporter and wow. they just wow <laughs> oh, Tyler's gonna be so happy to hear that it's her favorite thing in the world <laughs> So it was insane. Wow. My sister said I should compose something out of recording. <laughs> yes, you should. Have you seen? There's a video of uh, lightsaber oh, God, battle, battle where We're every doing contact work today wow, for like wow, the third wow. time. That's amazing. Um, and his his group of his cast of characters, which mm-hmm. it really is. I know it's a film and they're characters, but they really are colorful people. Sets out to find the shark and take revenge upon it. It's. I mean, it's a little wacky, some of the things that happen, but yeah. it's got that smooth sort of calmness and and almost suave, gentlemanly press-forwarding that that uh, I've only seen one other Wes Anderson film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. That film shared that same sort of style in, in terms of the way the plot sort of skimmed forward For smoothly sure. across the water, like a boat. <laughs> <laughs> like the Belafonte. Uh, the Belafonte sort of loud <laughs> <laughs> when you could get it running <laughs> yes the Belafonte being the ship in the film uh, so yeah I mean that's that's the summary I want to give I'm not I'm the one of the three who doesn't give those 20 minute scene by scene you know, well to be fair to Tim like his first uh, attempt at it was the very first time yes, we tried to, to summarize fair. and then I took my cue from him and just gushed about yes. Godzilla for 45 oh, minutes right. straight so, so there's my summary this cast of characters heads off and I am eager to talk, but more importantly, Joel, <laughs> you selected our film this month. Why? Okay. Tell us about your history with the film and why you brought it to us. Mm-hmm. So my introduction to Wes Anderson came with Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, Tyna and I had just happened upon the trailer, and I fell in love instantly with it. I was like, this is so quirky and awkward and just it allowed moments to breathe in a trailer so i was like okay this this aesthetic this style this is for me mm-hmm. saw that f- film loved it and then did the joel thing that i do and went to devour everything i could <laughs> get my hands on by wes anderson and the second film that i picked up was life aquatic and i own one Criterion Collection DVD in my whole collection, and it's this. Hmm. This is top three of my favorite movies of all time. Wow. I've wow. seen it wow. 
whole bunch of times. I, I, I have it on my phone, and I will just listen to the dialogue all the way through, start it back over, and listen to the dialogue again yeah, without wow. seeing any of the visuals. So this You're passionate about this movie. I, I yeah. love this movie. Um, first time I saw it, I was watching it on a laptop. Um, it's an old apartment situation. Lived in the same room with another guy. Had my headphones in and just like he had gone to bed and I was watching this at night and just it's instantly quirky and you you instantly suspend your disbelief with the stop motion animation of the sea creatures mm-hmm. and which was beautiful just just from the very first second where you see uh, it opens with Zisu showing his part one of his documentary where Esteban is killed mm-hmm. Jack and Shark part one just the first <laughs> it, it, it's live aquatic Steve Zisu and the frame of him showing up like so there's this one shot of Everybody, all the frogmen are in scuba gear and they're swimming towards the, the uh, camera. And then the next shot is Steve Zissou and it's Bill Murray, shirtless. He's got shades on. He's looking up and away. And I was like, okay, this is for me. I'm like, I'm hooked in. <laughs> and every other part of it just delivered for me. I I, I, I love this film. So I, I mainly I wanted to bring a Wes Anderson film to the table. Um just because it's a different aesthetic than we had looked at before. Um, so that, that's kind of why I brought it. It's one of my favorite films. You guys hadn't seen it. And we would, we always talk about directors that we like in outside of the podcast, so I wanted to bring this here. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for bringing it to us. Yeah. We're glad you did. Absolutely. Uh so you are well established as a Wes Anderson lover. You've you've yeah. watched a bunch of his films and you've yeah. watched them a lot. I'm in preparation yes. for this episode. Uh, <laughs> I watched uh, four Wes Anderson films uh, in 48 hours. Where have we heard that before? Oh, James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Godzilla. <laughs> yes. So uh, I have only before this only seen one Wes Anderson film. It was the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I, I was visiting my mom. Uh, presumably for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and we were bored one night, and we were looking through the uh, available films, and there it was. And I said, oh, this was supposed to be good. And we went, all right, and we watched it. And I loved it. And it took me a second while you were talking to remember that that was how I'd first seen it, because I could have sworn I was in a theater, because mm-hmm. it was just that good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was excited to see more Wes Anderson. And Life Aquatic is, I, I might say, sort of the most mentioned when people talk about him, um, at least outside of his, you know, known, known canon. Canon, sure, right? Just That's in terms of maybe because of Bill Murray and the huge cast, or because that was the one where after he'd broken through. I, I don't know, but for some reason that was just that's the one that I think about when I think about with him. I think it's definitely one of the strangest. Of mm-hmm. I'm actually voices. a bit relieved to hear that because it was yeah. a little stranger than I was expecting. Yeah. But I still liked it. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I think the one that comes up the most frequently, at least when people talk about Wes Anderson being as Wes Anderson as possible, is Royal Tenenbaum. <laughs> which is the one that I know Tim has Tim's seen. seen yes. Yeah. And it turned him off forever. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, I don't even remember anything about that film. I remember just being like, what the fuck is this? And, and that, was, that was it. Um, <clears throat> I remember, I like, I'd seen Rushmore before that. And Rushmore I kind of liked... 
Um, and this is another this is another blockbuster story. Like you know, at the <laughs> ding 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 ding. You know, <laughs> um, at you know at the time it was when you know I was working at Blockbuster and with a bunch of other people who who had you know different degrees of of film aspirations. That's how a lot of us ended up working at Blockbuster. You know, like one guy wanted to be a filmmaker and uh, you know one another one wanted to be an actress and I wanted to be a composer. So it's like you know like we would kind of kind of like we're doing now share all our favorite stuff with each other. And, How you know, is that not a movie? Should we write a play? Yeah, we should. Dude. Obviously. Yes, it's happening. Yeah. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's that way we have to stick to it. No, so nobody steals it. Oh, That's right, what I'm right, saying. Yeah. Like, this is the clerk's... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> second... This is our clerk's. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I think that was sort of the thing is like, you know, some of us were artsy, some of us were, were, were more quirky. And, you know, there are other people in the group who, yeah, I think were, were way more into Wes Anderson and it just didn't click with me. Um and uh, you know it was it was funny too because like that was also when like just Jason Schwartzman in general was really big. Yeah. Like I remember you know he did that and then he did uh, what was it the one where like the the kids are like cheating and and he's the one who he was in love with this girl and he had a hair doll made like a, a hair <laughs> from her hair. Oh, what the hell is that? I can't remember. Anyway. But it was this just like, terrifying. yeah, he was he was just like this this kind of up and coming actor. But he had that kind of like that was his thing, doing these his weird, quirky, quirky stuff. And he was the drummer for a band at that time too, like some some That's crappy right. alternative band. Like I remember <laughs> seeing like on the Blockbuster TV, like the video for that song would come up with Jason Schwartzman playing the drums, and I was just like, okay, yeah, like this this fits you, but but you know that wasn't wasn't my thing. But I remember. Uh, you remember, remember, remember the time. But that was the thing is like Rushmore was kind of cool, but and in, in, you know maybe that was the thing. It was kind of him dipping his toe in the water, and it was it was relatively like quote unquote normal, you know. And it, so it was fine. It didn't it didn't scare me off the way Royal Tannenbaum's did, but it was also not something where I was like, oh, I need to watch that again and rewatch it. I remember though, what my favorite <laughs> moment is. In the uh, and they would play this in the trailer and I loved it is the one where they're like driving in the car and like Bill Murray's driving and one of the kids says I'm like blow it out your ass and there's this pause and then he just turns around and starts like trying to beat the kid behind him and it was like oh my god that's my dad <laughs> but like it was it was so funny because it was just like and, you know like you said like they allowed to have breath in in the trailer like the yeah. fact that there was this moment after the kids said it where nothing happens he's decided and then he's like yep yep this kid needs to get whacked you know <laughs> that's another thing about west Anderson. there's like these pauses and then sudden bursts of violence yeah yeah he's like very refined very articulate figures mm-hmm. same thing happens in this when somebody's talking shit about um uh steve's not Sitting Shiva for uh, Esteban, he's not mourning mm-hmm. properly. Right. Who are you going to kill in part two? And he, there's that moment where he decides to go and beat right. the kids ass. Yeah. Or even later with the when they come across Hennessy and the Filipinos, yeah. they're just playing poker and yeah. everything's perfectly fine. And he says, "I fold," and then bang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So t- Tim, having that background with Wes, how, how did you feel about this film? I feel like you've said the least, and I'm I'm ex- excited to hear what your yeah. impression was. Um, I I I liked it. I kind of I <laughs> I felt more about this the way I did about Rushmore than about Royal Tannenbaums, mm-hmm. where it was, you know, it was it was That's different. Yeah, it was different. It was you know, I I found things. I mean, I did I did fall asleep for part of the beginning as things were kind of coming together, um, 
but like once I kind of woke up and got into it, I think by then like things were kind of moving a little bit more too. So it was like, oh, okay, like yeah, let's let's jump into this. And you know, I think I kind of at, at the beginning I kind of saw what was happening. Like, oh yeah, he's going to go on this second part journey. He's going to group everyone. And it was a really long time before that happened. And I remember when I when Joel nudged me and I woke up, it was when they were like getting on the boat to do the journey. And I was like, oh, okay, so now it's happening. Um, you also have a text from me. Yeah, I, I saw that later. Yeah. No, bitch. <laughs> but uh, I I I really liked and and I there was something with it that I couldn't put my finger on until there was the scene where Owen Wilson and Bill Murray are like sort of running through the boat and you can tell that there's no fourth wall and I was like that's what it is like this is a play yeah. like the way all of the dialogue is spoken it's 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 a play it's a play that's that's being filmed you know and the way that set is not like different rooms that you kind of cut away it's oh they're walking through this set that has been built as one big piece and there's an audience sitting there watching it which is almost kind of a meta thing because you have that part at the beginning and the very end where people are watching the premiere so it was almost like that was the audience to the the film as a play yeah. as a whole mm-hmm. you know um for sure so so that part was kind of cool like i i, I like that that helped um it helped make sense of that quirkiness you know um, and I feel like, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross was the same way. Like, the first time I saw it, Hell I didn't yeah. realize it was originally a play. And I was like, there's something weird about this. This isn't like other movies I've seen. It's hypnotic. Yeah. And, and, but then once I realized that, it's like, oh, okay, this is act one, scene one. Right. Boom, we're in this, this, this bar, and we're just sitting here with Al Pacino talking to this guy and trying to sell this thing to him. You know, and, and this had a lot of stuff like that, just the way certain dialogue was delivered and how some of it was almost like... You know, explaining some of the action. You know, like kind of like, kind of like we get in comic books sometimes, mm-hmm. where oh, I better swing over to here and punch this guy in the face. Like what? People don't. I must wield think. my power cosmic. Right. Yeah. Like people wouldn't think those things. Right. Um. So that was kind of cool. That 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 part of it, to me, like yeah, it made it sort of make sense as opposed to just being like you know kind of a quirk for quirkiness's right. sake. Um, it kind of explains a lot of the symmetry of the aesthetic. Because yeah. if you think of it as a set that is designed a specific way right, yeah. to be viewed from as on stage. Right, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, that the, the audience is for the most part looking at it head on. Yeah. And you know, the you want the most important actor in the center and the other people are kind of behind him and around him and um yeah, there were a, a few moments like that too, where you would definitely see like, Oh yeah, this is a stage, boom, it would kind of jump out at you some of the, the bigger shots. Um I also another thing that that lined up with that for me too was <laughs> like all the stuff with like the the power going out and like the boat breaking down like it was really cool that it added this sense of of realism that there was that stuff going on in the background but you could tell it was like orchestrated into what was happening right. you know he'd say a line the lights would go out he would say something the lights would come back yeah. up like like there was a rhythm to all of that and everything so so that part of it I thought was really cool, really well composed, you know, how all those elements worked in. Um, yeah, and that, and that one scene where they're walking through the boat and how that one shot, like, okay, we've got to time this, we've got to have this guy here and walk through here. And, you know, you're seeing this person doing this random thing in this room and they walk by that person and then go up here and then Kate Blanchett meets them at the top. And, like, that stuff was really cool. I, I really um, appreciated that from that sort of filmmaking visual standpoint. Um but uh, but it's also kind of weird. It's like you know, uh, and, and maybe this is something you know if you've seen it more and kind of researched it. Like 
like was that something that was intentional and if so why was it like oh i want to make a film about going on a boat out to the ocean hey let's i I should do it so it's like a play you know like was there a reason for that sort of connection so what i've gotten from watching wes anderson stuff is it's all very literary everything's framed with it like grand budapest is it opens with a girl walking to a cemetery sitting down to read a book and then written the, by presumably your favorite author yeah and, and that narrator is reading it. author yeah oh, okay and then mm-hmm. you see him in his study reading the book and then it opens the on author. jude law is a younger like version jude of that law. guy yeah. okay yes yeah and, and he's, he's hearing the story from, from another narrator the guy who oh, okay. was the bellhop who when he was a boy and it's a story about somebody else Rafe Rafe Fiennes okay so it it sounds it's very pretentious and it's six degrees of separation from the Mm storyline but I always get the sense from his work that that's how he's meant it to be conveyed is that it's a film of a book of a thing that kind of thing like Royal Tannenbaums is a book Mm-hmm. As it starts, it's it opens up. And oh, right, right. And yeah, then yeah. it has chapter headings and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as Budapest did as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Moonrise Kingdom isn't like that. That's kind of a strange outlier. Um, but I, at least from a visual point, that cross-section of the, the Belafonte, like mm-hmm. that is an old Hollywood technique. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a Jerry Lewis film that uses it to perfection that I'd really like to show you guys at some point it's called Mm -hmm. The Ladies Man and it's this epic set where you see all of the different cogs of this giant house Mm -hmm. because half of it's cut away and each one is this meticulously designed set Mm -hmm. and it just it it allows you to move and I'm not sure I haven't heard the commentaries or read interviews about why it did that but I I get the sense that Wes is a guy who understands I'm on a first name basis with him, <laughs> that uh, he, he's paying tribute to that old style of oh, okay. pr- right. presentation, at least from yeah. that perspective. So almost maybe that it's not like uh, uh, an homage to theater, but how in early in early Hollywood wasn't it like theater actors who were being put on film? Yeah. So like the style hadn't adapted to what we know as like Hollywood stuff, where you could do things like close ups and have real whispering instead of stage whispering, right. you know that type of thing. So okay, I think they, yeah, that plus makes it a was an easy sense. way to like okay, we've got a lot of sets stacked together. We can move from one to the one to one without yeah. changing locations, changing lighting. Right, everything yeah. is already set out in those yeah. little compartments. Yeah, uh-huh. it it also fit too. I think with like just the overall aesthetic that it was. You know, like at one point I asked, I was like, when is this supposed to take place? Because it was one of those things where like, you know, you're trying to get a bead on the technology and like, okay, there's the dot matrix printer and, you know, they kind of have computers, but they're really old and, you know, I can't really get a sense. And um, what you said, like late 70s, early 80s, you think is yeah. what it's supposed to I be? Always, yeah. I always think of it as like this nostalgia age, this yeah. timeless place where Wes Anderson's fondness for the past exists. Yeah. So I think it makes sense to have like this stop time animation as opposed to CGI because I feel like that would have been really out of place to have like you know yeah yeah more more modern effects and more modern ways of dealing with things you know oh we'll just do it all green screen or something like that you know it would have looked weird so this it made it look very authentic you know like yeah. not only did the film take place in the late 70s early 80s but almost like it could have been actually filmed yeah. at that time you and know? it really made the real life animals that they use pop. Mm-hmm. Too, because they have those about, uh, 
albino do- dolphins with yeah. the cameras and the sea turtles. The three like a dog. And then the three like a dog. And all of the cats on Pitchup Spada Island. And then the... Um, Dogs on there, too. Yeah, there's two Irish Monstrous wolf Irish wolfhounds, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Shamu. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess killer whale orca. Shamu is not the only... <laughs> that's the name of the species. <laughs> Free Willy! <laughs> what do you got, Scott? Well... Because I, I, I have all yeah. kinds of questions to ask you guys if you need... I mean, I've lost, I lost one of the things I was going to say, and I feel stupid now, but... Um, the other one was that this felt... Oh, no, I got it back. But the first, first one of the ones is that this felt like we weren't watching a movie. That the movie was happening somewhere else in this world. And we had just stuck with these side characters. <laughs> like, um, I guess uh, in, in the sixth Harry Potter book, there's a character who's, I think it's her mom or her aunt, is murdered at some point during the book. This is like if we'd been watching her, her relation the whole time. Who? Which character? Um, Luna? No, it's... She works for the Ministry, and she's on Bones. Uh, Madam Bones dies at some point. And her daughter, is, or, or niece or whatever, is at Hogwarts, apparently. And there's a bit where she's, you know... Okay. Anyway, the point is that we were watching this relative the whole time. Because what happened in their life was bits and pieces of who cares plus what needed to happen so that it could relate to the main characters mm-hmm. and it created this disjointed sort of sequence of events which I felt permeated this entire film <laughs> that at some point someone else somewhere was going to have a conversation about what had just happened to Steve Zizou or oh yes on his last expedition there was this thing or they were going to make some more oh yeah like that one time on the, the Zizou revenge expedition <laughs> but that we were watching that Okay. So the bits we were seeing, despite having time skips, were the only bits that happened, if that makes sense. Okay. Because they were the only things that needed to to facilitate whatever else was going on that was more important. And even though we were not seeing everything start to finish, we were seeing everything start to finish. I don't know, I'm having trouble putting my finger on it, but it, I took a little getting used to but in the end it was sort of a just relax and go on with the ride sort of thing mm. which similarly into thing two this film did so well the lack of rhyme or reason it did so very well feeling like it felt like real life because real life doesn't follow plots the way movies and books do with things happening when they're supposed to happen and in reference to other things and an influence of other things and mm. foreshadowing and whatnot life just happens and we interact with all kinds of different people and and that this felt a lot like that in the sense of the arbitrary sequence of events you know things would just sometimes just happen like oh we're gonna have a conversation now it's gonna be awful and it's gonna not relate to the last scene or the next scene but that just because these are real people this is what's happening to them one of the best examples of that I think is when um, towards the end Steve falls down the stairs and I think yeah. even Tim was like, "Oh God!" Like, yeah. it's like this guy actually fell. Like, it doesn't look rehearsed. Or, like, it looks right. like Bill took his tumble. Yeah, and he's on the ground. And he's talking about like we're going to show him the real story this time. Washed mm-hmm. up guy. People laughing at him, feeling sorry for himself. Mm-hmm. Can I talk to my son? Mm-hmm. Everybody else moves away. The camera crew of the documentary moves away, and we're sitting watching this conversation happen between him and his son. Mm-hmm. And it's that awkwardness of like 
Steve doesn't know what to say or how to express how he's feeling, mm-hmm. but he wants to be genuine and not performing for the first time in the whole thing. Yeah. And that tumble is a very human thing. Because mm-hmm. that's another, like, Steve is trying to create this persona through his film. He wants these storylines to happen, but the reality of, like, it's exactly what you were saying, Scott, is that the reality of what was going on is not this grandiose figure that Steve wants to be. He doesn't. He's not Jacques Cousteau anymore. He's ten years past his prime. He's struggling with the idea that he created this new reality, but he can't live, live in it. A, yeah. 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 He can't yeah. blow the Jaguar shock up with dynamite. <laughs> well, I mean, he was out of dynamite. He was out of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that was my favorite movement, favorite moment of the whole film. And this is kind of just like blowing through, but just like that. I don't know that something not not a hundred percent connected with me, but like like that moment when they finally see it, and it's just kind of like you know he's like, oh my god, like I feel like you almost feel like you know, am I crazy? Like everyone thinks you're crazy. Like yeah, sure, the jaguar shark, sure. And it's like you almost, I feel like that's all he knew by that point was like I have to I have to find the shark I have to do this this is the last thing I have left yeah Mm. and it's like you you know you almost wonder if like you forget what the goal is in life you're just on a path and you just have to keep going because like well what would he do in life if he just stopped going after the jaguar shark you know it's like and and then to finally get there be like oh yeah like shit I did see this you know like you gotta wonder yeah he was probably doubting himself by that point and just like to have the confirmation but also the resolution. It's like okay, I don't, I don't need to kill it. Like, just knowing that okay, like you know, other people will see it. Other people will know I'm not crazy. Like it's it's a, it's the the end of this journey, you know. And and you know, almost that there was like you know like a, like an arrested development to a degree. Like he was just like stuck on this thing and never could like really grow as a person. And then finally, so on this journey, he finally you know with the falling down the stairs, it was like. You know, that, I think, you know, is one of the things that kind of snapped him out of this, like, sort of blinders view. Like, oh, yeah, no matter what, we've got to find this jaguar shark. And, and you know, getting to sort of, you know, see the shark and be like, okay, yes, like, this this journey is at an end. It was just like, oh, shit, like, I want to I wanna feel that someday. <laughs> you know? how, how cool that that <laughs> sequence, because it's, they're all jammed in this tiny, comically tiny yeah. sub. Mm-hmm. And it's this comically animated shark. Mm-hmm. But it's this super poignant emotional moment, and it, it's yeah. just nailed. Yeah. Like, it, something that could be... Like, if we had seen that scene out of context, mm-hmm. without having the film before it, it would seem cheesy. There right. would, it would emote laughter. Like, yeah. there's no gravitas to that. But because we had followed him to that point, yeah. I think Esteban dying might have... Like, until that point, Steve had been living... The lie, like the persona he had created, mm-hmm. that was the world he lived in because that's all anybody had ever seen. Nobody ever got hurt. There was no reality to it. Mm-hmm. He could just present that to the world, and then Esteban dies, and then his whole world is revenge. Yeah, and then at the end, it's what? Where? Where is Steve after that? Right. Yeah. I, I agree, but I disagree. Okay. In that, I mean, I agree with what Joel said. The moment is emotional and very well done, and beautiful. And I agree sort of with what Tim said in that it, it was sort of like he felt that he had to obligated to sort of just see the shark. But I don't think he wanted to anymore. At I don't, that point? I think he didn't care. 
I think that once Ned died, mm-hmm. that was what it became about. That was sort of, he was like, well, that was my movie and my reality. They have come together now. And this shark, which was this last remnant of of my, my chase to return to a fictional past, is completely worthless. That's I feel I, I was almost certain that when they buried Ned, he was gonna, they were just going to go home and mm-hmm. forget the shark. But they didn't. They went on, but not... There was no enthusiasm. There was no celebration. And Tim, you you know, you sort of interpreted it as the only thing he had left, and that's why it was somber. But I interpreted it as that he just didn't care anymore. There was this sense of like, well, I'm obligated, you know, partly to Esteban, partly to the film. But it's also, I think, to his son and, too. Like, sure, then because he would have really know, died came, for Ned nothing. Came with him for yeah. the expedition, but mm-hmm. but I think we see that in the film at the end that he presents. The film in the film, because it's about Ned, as far as we see. Anyway, yeah. he doesn't see, even watch it. Yeah, he maybe he watch can't it. watch it because it doesn't. The shark is irrelevant now. It was well, that was what we started for, and that's why he came. But I, no, this was his reality is finally good enough to put on the screen, or not good enough, but just I don't know. I, yeah. He, he ceases to care about it being good enough. It's just mm. this is what happened. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really interesting is when the um, um, tracking system comes back online and Steve suggests going to take a look, the way he says it is, <laughs> anybody want to go for a ride? Yeah. It's not vengeful. It's mm-hmm. not. No. It's almost curious. Because he doesn't need this big dramatic vengeance on the shark ending that he would have needed once. He just... It's something to do. Like, we're here. I mean, we've come this far. So, you know, let's do it. But I don't have to, you know, yeah, right, let's see, see what's up. What did we think of Owen Wilson's character in this movie? Oh, I loved him. It, so, his character was the linchpin, I think, that if his character was gone or different, I would not have liked this film. Mm. And it's weird because I liked the film a lot, so it's weird to say that it was all hinging on something like that. But it was because there's the whole back and forth between him worrying about the father thing and what happened with his mother and the old career and the career he left to do this and does he like this at all and then he starts in with the reporter and it's so just scattered but it feels very stable somehow his character feels like the point that I'm following because I had so much trouble understanding Steve Zizou (laughs) you know motivation wise (laughs) I think by design Mm -hmm. and I mean I'm glad I did and the other characters are much more peripheral, so it's harder to understand them until they step into a scene, specifically explain everything, like uh, Klaus did, and then step out again, you know. So really, except for the reporter and Steve Zizou and Ned, those are our three who anchor the film in terms of we're watching what's happening to them and their decisions and trying to empathize with them. And the reporter is in background enough, just enough, that it's you know her her fate is sort of left unresolved and that's okay because she never quite made it to center stage you know mm-hmm. and Steve Zizou is Steve Zizou so he's our main character but he's he even he doesn't know what he's thinking really <laughs> he's figuring it out so we get Ned who's just the he's the relatable character he sort of serves as our Watson in this situation <laughs> where he brings <laughs> us into it that's interesting like, he's as confused about us as what's going on but he's excited but he's got his own thoughts but it yeah, I liked it a lot. What do you think, Tim? I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm, I'm hot and cold with Owen Wilson in general, usually. 
Um, I have I have a hard time wow. taking him seriously. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, I love him in stuff like was it like the, the one with Jackie Chan? What the hell? What's the what's Shanghai that? Nights? Yeah, Shanghai and Nights. New. Like, like he's perfect. Like, like that that to me is Owen Wilson. Like that's who he's supposed to be. Um, and I or, or like even like Meet the Parents, you know, like this kind of like half douchey but likable ex boyfriend kind of like he's always over the top. Yeah, you know, and like so so it's it's I have a hard time sometimes when it's like I like I almost feel like like and, and I'm you know like for for me like if it was Luke Wilson, like I feel like he's a little bit more um, more vanilla, more middle of the road. So like I, I have an easier time buying him in more serious. Like, not necessarily serious, but non-comical roles, not non-caricature type roles, you know, um, you know. But you know, having said that, like, he he did fade out of being Owen Wilson more than he has in other roles I've seen him in. For you sure, know, where he yeah he did kind of lose himself more in this role. Um, one of the things I thought of that was kind of cool too is like you know him him in relation to. Um, Steve Zissou is like how you know there, I feel like whenever you have a sort of father and son thing like you almost expect there to be like a sort of passing the torch kind of thing you know and I think that was the big the big important thing about the ending is that like it's not like oh like Steve dies and then he takes over the show for right. him like you get this kind of backward sort of thing where you know like you, you know your parent is supposed to bury a child kind of thing and it's like you know um I thought that was that was kind of a really cool twist, and that yeah, like kind of like you were saying, Scott, like you know, he was there at the front enough to kind of hold things together, but and maybe to set that trajectory where you think that's what's supposed to happen, but then to be like, nope, that's that's not how this works, and you know, again, it's more like real life. It's not like, oh yes, the father gets to you know pass the torch and then die peacefully, knowing his son will take over. It's like, nope, it's not that, and now you have to live with this and. You know, the, the guilt of like, oh, God, is this my fault? Um, also, I had a question, too. So and maybe I missed it, which which happens a lot. <laughs> but did they ever confirm that he actually is his son? Because it was the that part. He isn't his son. Right. Because she said, like, he always shoots blanks or whatever. No, right? he's sterile. That means he's sterile. Yeah. 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 So like. He literally can't have children. Yeah. So like I, I that was sort of the thing is like, you know, it kind of bounced back. And that was the last thing I remember hearing is that like, OK, like, is that was that real was that just something she said like so um so i thought that was interesting like taking on this whole thing where does it matter if he's his biological son or not and did he just need something to feel like oh there has to be more to my life than this fucking shark i've been chasing now and like oh cool i have a son but it's like oh but but you don't but now but now does steve know that he's not his son or does he, he doesn't get the sense that yeah okay but I mean, if he knows that he was infertile, like that's the other thing I wonder too. Is like, is he, you know, was that the type of thing where they tried to have children, but then she went to the doctor? Oh, well, she's fine, but he's not. Like, you know, like, and maybe that's part of it is you're not really supposed to know, and you're kind of supposed to be like, well, maybe he was infertile, but not because I'm assuming she he met Angelica Houston's character like afterwards. I think they were so, married at the point at which he hooked up. With oh, his mom. okay. So, so it, it's it's unclear to me whether he be, his started to shoot blanks after a certain amount of depressurization from scuba diving, right? Yeah, which is what uh, his wife how she describes why it, yeah, happened, or oh, her theory right, yeah. about mm-hmm. it. 
Um, so I've always thought of that as ambiguity. Yeah. That ambiguous whether or not he is um, his father. And I, at the end, it doesn't matter. I think yeah. that's that's what we're meant right. to yeah. assume. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of my favorite Owen Wilson roles. And I think it's because his commitment to the Southern accent. And it's this... <laughs> it, it's not broken. It's not caricatured. It's very soft. He's very sensitive. He's mm-hmm. very, it's everything that every other character he's ever played is not. Mm-hmm. And he, like, it showed a level of depth to his acting ability that I hadn't seen anything else. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 kind of when it starts, it's like that's his voice. That's how he's going to play this character. Is the, where's the joke? Is there mm-hmm. something coming? Right. And it's I, I even rewatching it again and again. It's I, I, there's that adjustment period that you have to go through. At least yeah. I have to. Um, but I'd, I'd really like that character, and he's a great offset to Steve, who's just kind of this blustering, insensitive. Like he uses derogatory terms for LGBT people throughout, oh, yeah. which mm-hmm. is really irritating and like he it's another difficulty with this film for me is that I love this film so much it's hard to defend that character Mm -hmm. but it's he's presented to be a dick that's that's his character that's why he says the things he is and it's he's called out for saying those things too Mm um I was gonna ask you guys what you thought of Klaus uh Klaus was Klaus was nice I think he it, much like in Brewpest, uh Willem Dafoe was there to serve a purpose of push forward things, to push things forward and execute the will of other characters. Um, he sort of drives the development of the relationship between Ned and Steve. By commenting on it. Mm-hmm. He, and being uncomfortable. Right. With so he sort of pushes it supplanted. forward. Which works out well. <laughs> In the end, okay. he's just—he's great, though. That's another thing about like I loved that there was the whole confrontation, like you touch me again, you know, and then later he's like, "Well, I owed you a slap, but but you gave me your warning, you know." And there's this whole conversation about like, "Well, now you you owe me a warning, but I owe you a slap. No, you don't. Like we're even." And but then they're just gone. That is never brought up again, yeah. even though they talk again, even though they talk about the jealousy thing again, about all sorts of things again. That particular, the the physical and altercations are just gone and again it, it's great because this film is not about Klaus well it's not about any of that we're not, we're not watching Klaus we're watching Ned and so Ned never talks to Klaus about it again so we don't get some scene where Klaus you know resolves it or talks to himself or talks to someone else or gets advice it just never comes up because it never comes up again for Ned and Steve well I mean Ned puts him on the flag sure but I and mean, you have that reconciliation sure that but point. what I mean is you know the physical sort of back and forth right you know, after it's all, after that, it's all verbal, all him commenting on the relationship and driving things forward. So, Tim, any thoughts? Um, I, I like that he he got to have that sort of resolution at the end too, with like you know him kind of feeling sl- like that. I like I love the comment about like, oh, I'm always on Team B, and he's like, but you're the leader of Team B. You know, like I thought that was really cool, where it's like. 
you know, yeah, like you can you can either be a follower, you know, like you know, last chair of the first violins or first chair of the second violins, kind of thing, you know, and and you know, I, so I kind of like that where it was like, you know, you you don't have this place because you're you're crap and I don't care. Like you have this place because I trust you, you mm-hmm. know. So I thought that was really cool. Like like have knowing his place and owning it and and you know, which then of course then he's like later is like, oh, you're on team A, and I was like, oh, okay. That's that's cool too, I guess. But like, you know, that part of it, um, I really dug. Um, yeah, and the whole thing at the end with the flag and how how touched he was by it and everything. I thought it was like, you know, very, very sweet, very, you know, kind of almost like yeah, that that sort of oh, this this is the person who's sort of had the sun roll for a while, and now there's the competition. But but got, you know, he got to feel like okay, I'm not being pushed out. You know, like I still have a place here. I, I'm constantly just delighted by such a, a juvenile little kid character being played by Goblin Man Willem Dafoe. <laughs> yeah. And just played so pure and so pitch perfect. Because mm-hmm. you get that sense like, until the second interaction, right? Until Ned slaps him back. He's this kind of stoic figure. He has a lot of gravitas. Mm-hmm. He's He's been around. He knows all this stuff. Once Ned slaps him, he turns into a little kid. Mm-hmm. It's like feuding little brother. Yeah. And that's how he interacts. Like when, when they're fighting and they're going up to the top of the um uh right after Steve discovers uh Ned in bed with the reporter. Mm-hmm. What's her name? Jane. Her name's Jane. Jane. Um they walk through the sauna and Klaus is sitting in the sauna and he goes, Are you guys fighting in that voice? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like it's that little kind of pushing and prodding little thing. And coming from Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. who's always played a badass, has right. been I it just was really cool to see that side of him in this little character. Mm-hmm. And he's in a lot of Wes Anderson's films, so it's it's right. was cool to see or maybe not a lot, but at least two. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was cool. Um, one of my favorite scenes, there's there's two really iconic scenes in this that really affected me. And the first is when they're on the ho- the uh, Belafonte for the party before anything happens, and Steve meets Ned for the first time. Ned tells him, or he says, you're supposed to be my son, right? Don't go away, I'll be right back. And he walks up to the bow of the ship. Uh, one long shot, too. One long shot. You've got David Bowie playing in the background. Mm-hmm. He gets to the top. He lights his joint. And as it comes down, it slows it with the music swelling. For some reason, that shot is, like, burned into my head. Mm-hmm. Like, I've, I had a night in Oxford, a drunken night, where I walked and it felt like I was there. Like, it, it's, it's embedded into my psyche. Mm-hmm. So there's that one. And then there's the moment on Pechaspata Island when Eleanor's leaving. And it's, she's, after he says, uh, don't say goodbye, it's too sad. Mm-hmm. Say yeah. bon voyage. She leaves. He's on the pier with the swinging lamp above him and the biplane goes right over it. And for some reason, that's like, that's the moment I knew I was in love with this movie for mm-hmm. the rest of my life. Like that, <laughs> for some reason, that loneliness, that looking up, that knowing she's not coming back. Mm-hmm. And seeing that he's fucked up for the very last time, like, I don't know. Those two scenes in particular are what I love about this movie. Did you guys have any, any idea, or 
impressions of those two scenes if they impacted the you first at all. one yes I, sure. I love that he just like just stop he needed something to stop for a second so he could take a break and come back and so you don't know that if he's gonna jump off the edge of the bow <laughs> right. or like he's running away you right. don't know what that is and mm-hmm. I we all wish we could do that sometimes just say okay pause <sighs> and then unpause and yeah that was brilliant because it again it felt real and in some situations it can be done and that was one that was fantastic um I really liked when he shouted at the pirates the Philippine pirates as they left you left your dog you idiot idiot. (laughs) and it's so frustrating he's just just, uh, (laughs) he's just that's all he can do is say they left their dog and call them idiots Mm -hmm. Uh, and it I've felt like that a lot of that at the end it just moron you did this thing you know I just I, I can't explain what I know Steve Zizu was feeling there but I have felt it and he's frustrated yeah. at all kinds of things like it's mm-hmm. at Ned for not watching it's about Ned being in Jane's room it's about them it's taking about over Ned going better with Jane than he he had it's about Ned having something at all when he has nothing it's about the pirates taking over it's about <sighs> yeah it's about all of it every last inch mm-hmm. Just so much. Oh, he's his dog. <laughs> this is the thing I choose to talk about. You know. <sighs> you know, it, it's it's funny too because I feel like you know a lot of people will sing the praises of Bill Murray, and and you know it's like I I, I like him. He's fine. Like, and th- this was the first one where I really I feel like I got to see him be an actor and not a comedian. <laughs> you know. Like, because you see him in in Ghostbusters, and yeah, he's the he's the quirky, funny one. Yeah. And then you know you see him in like, um, uh, <laughs> like you know, other end of the spectrum kind of. You know, yeah. Well, I, I I've never seen Stripes, which I'm not sure is you know uh, a sin, but uh, uh, but like you know, or like in like Zombieland, where he has. I mean, he's in that movie because he has this clout that he's built, and it's like, oh my god, it's Bill Murray's house, and and he's like perfect for that part like yeah you believe that he would be this celebrity that's still alive in a zombie apocalypse and this is what he does every day and this is how he survives and it's like you know and it's this fun kind of break from from what's going on but like yeah it's it's still kind of more funny than anything you know and this was the first one where it was just like oh damn and like you know like I don't know if many other actors could have done that like you said like built up all of that frustration from everything that was happening and you know the the, yeah, the awkwardness of every time he was trying to hit on Jane and it like it wasn't working and you know and him kind of you know busting into her room and all this other stuff and um, you, you know and on top of that kind of doing that like I like I've mentioned the whole like feeling like it was a play thing, which you know it's, I, I see lots of parodies of people doing stuff like that and it's like this is why I don't watch more theater like I feel like there's a certain way that that yeah people deliver lines on stage and i know a lot of it's because of product you know projecting and being people being able to see what's happening from great distances but like whenever he would deliver lines like that it kind of pulled me out of it because it's like that's like i said it reminded me i was watching a play but he was able to do that plus still like sell that he was just this kind of pressure cooker that was building the whole film you know and yeah and that was kind of one of the points where it just like exploded and it was just like you know like really started falling apart but like you you bought it it wasn't just like oh that came out of nowhere you know bill murray's been funny this whole movie and all of a sudden he just killed a bunch of pirates you know you're like yeah no this is that's legit you know and um 
Yeah, and like, and to a degree, like, I also feel like sometimes he's that type of thing where he's Bill Murray as so and so, but like, he, I feel like, yeah, he also really kind of lost himself in his character, and 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 again, maybe he does that in a lot of other roles, and I'm, I'm just not a big enough fan and seen enough of his stuff, but you know, like, yeah, like I don't, I don't know that many other people could have pulled it off to that degree, where by the time he yells at the dog, you're just like, yeah, I get it, as opposed to like, well, oh, that was kind of weak and uncomfortable and awkward the way he yelled at those pirates you think he'd be more mad and had a better insult you know it's like nope I get it you know he threw the gun he had into the ocean some yeah. out of ammo and then just yelled you left your dog yeah I think one of the greatest things about this movie is that Wes Anderson's very pretentious in the way he writes and the way dialogue is delivered <laughs> and Bill Murray is a perfect counterpoint to that no matter what mm-hmm. he says in this film however erudite or well constructed it's Bill Murray saying that line, mm-hmm. and he's not blowing it up your ass. He's not toffee nose. There's nothing pretentious about this man, mm-hmm. and I think it's a great balance for what can be perceived as super pretentious yeah. and beating you over the head with its vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I think that's something Royal Tenenbaums does. Mm-hmm. Is that these are very pristine, eloquent figures that are very damaged but very highfalutin. Mm-hmm. You don't get the sense of that's what this guy is. Yeah. This is a working class guy who happened to be a good oceanographer. Mm -hmm. And he's just trying to make a movie. Yeah. (laughs) In Grand Budapest, too, I I don't know if it's about the casting in Wes Anderson's films or about Wes Anderson's direction Mm -hmm. or just that they get really good actors or I don't know, but they all seem to be very firmly ensconced in their roles. For sure. I don't think I've seen anyone yet myself who stuck out to me. Uh, Willem Dafoe sort of stuck out a tiny bit here because I was looking for his character from Grand Budapest. <laughs> but only for a couple scenes and then it just smoothed over and uh-huh. he, was, he was Klaus. Yeah. He was Klaus again. Also, I'm not... You're right about the pretension... There's a rigidity to it, too. Right, but it works because it works within the characters. It's not for us. Right. not the point. You know, so when... uh, I'll use Grand Budapest again just because I know it better, but when Ray Fiennes' character says to the boy, the bellhop, he'll make reference to some painter or some composer, and the bellhop will just sort of look at him blankly because he doesn't have that formal education. And it's not pretentious because there's no assumption of, oh, you don't know that? Like, there's like, he sort of thinks and goes, oh, I guess you wouldn't be familiar. It's like, he feels clearly disappointed. Not that the boy doesn't have the appropriate background, but he could feel disappointed in that, well, well, shit, I've failed to communicate. It's like, crap. So on the other hand, you could have that same conversation where they say, you know, the whole thing had an air of sort of, uh, sort of like Beethoven's later works to it. And if the person went, no, I don't. I don't know. You get the sense that he would say mm, maybe more like Mozart's earlier stuff. Ah, yes, exactly. Great. Like they, that with the right person, they could have that whole conversation. Right. And it might come off as pretentious to us because we don't know composers, but to these two who do, there's no pretension. They're just talking about composers because they both listen. And that he's their characters are trying to do that because that's just how those characters talk. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily any arrogance in there. It's just this is the language they speak. So when when Zizu talks in a certain way to someone else and doesn't click, it's not because Zizu's trying to be the arrogant, pretentious asshole, or because Wes Anderson is trying to prove that he can write scripts better than anyone. It's because 
you know, that's just how Steve talks. And it doesn't click with how the other person talks. And how we talk isn't just the dialogue that needs to happen in the film. It comes from where each character came from. In a much yeah, truer true. sense than in a lot of other films. The way they talk comes from the character's life. Yeah, I mean, Monsieur Gustave mm-hmm. is the way he is. He's a yes. product of a certain upbringing, and he's not... Yeah. And he talks that way, and it feels natural, because we can see in here, in everything he does and says, that upbringing. So it all clicks. In the same way that Steve Zizou had that separation between his attempted filmic voiceovers and his lines that were planned ahead and then when he was just talking well I mean it's all totally disarmed when he talks to Eleanor as she's leaving he's like who's gonna remember all the scientific names of the fish and shit you know mm-hmm. I can't remember that <laughs> right um. because he's just not like that but he does talk like Steve Zizou which is still different from the way other people talk so it yeah. still doesn't always work so well you know, he goes back to his working man who's become an oceanographer upbringing, but it doesn't always tally with all these other working Joes he's brought along with him into oceanography mm-hmm. because they came from different backgrounds, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't quite link up. Yeah, I see that a lot with, with lots of people where they kind of grow up with something and they assume everyone kind of knows what you're talking about. I mean, I get all that, that all the time with sports. Mm-hmm. People will start talking to me about sports, and it's like, you know, like okay like I get it like 99% of people you talk to on a daily basis will understand what you're talking about but I do not I have no idea what you know and and you know do you not notice my eyes glazing over as you continue to talk to me about sports that like maybe I'm not interested you know and again like that's not pretension you know mm-hmm. like it's like they, they they're the used to what is, is yeah word. yeah 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 it's, it's a presumption that like oh yeah and it's like you know and I always joke about this like I'm gonna start walking up to strangers and just talk to them about current comic book issues assuming oh because i read comic books you must read comic books you know <laughs> so but, you know but again it's like i don't think i'm better than anyone because i read comic books you know and it's um, i do yeah. <laughs> i think you're better than everyone because you read comic books <laughs> see how i flipped it yeah i like that <laughs> but, <laughs> but but yeah better I, than you all because i hated your joke <laughs> <laughs> therein lies the real pretension <laughs> The real pretension was within you all along. <laughs> the pretension is coming from inside the head. <laughs> uh, the call was coming from inside the pretension. <laughs> How many more ways can we butcher this joke? None for me. It's right. dead. <laughs> it's presumed dead. Oh, boom! Damn no it! One, no one's gonna. You startled me when you shouted out right yeah. there. I just went. <laughs> uh, Oh man! So do we want to talk about the score of the film? Oh yeah, as we both look at Tim. <laughs> well, it, it was interesting. Here's well, one of the one I shouldn't say the first thing, but one of the, the most interesting things, and I'm going to steal Joel's, Joel's gag right now and date the podcast. Shit. Is a few weeks ago I watched uh, Thor Ragnarok, which was scored by Mark Mother. You've taken everything. I have no stick left. What am I supposed to do now? That's what Joel said. So I've also taken your ability to say that. I'm sorry, Tim. Please, okay. please continue. Does that matter? Um, ha! I took your thing. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I knew that was going to catch on at some point. I, similarly, Joel, I had a bit. It's just stealing somebody oh, else's God. bit. <laughs> which God. you just did. 
Oh, oh, this is a good point. I should bring this up. This is this is a funny, quirky thing. I, I told Joe, but I didn't tell Scott. Joel, Joel, I, I mean to put the L at the end. Sometimes it's not coming out. It's not because Scott, I think your name is Scott well. and Joe Scott and Tim. Joe. So, Scott, Joe, Tim. So uh, my mom sent me a Facebook message telling me that, that she had listened to our podcast. And, you know, she liked it and everything. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know exactly which one she had watched, if it was the most recent one. Um, the most recent one that was posted was the recap for Cycle 2. So I asked her, I was like, well, which one was Wait, it? Like, well, cycle 1. You mean Cycle, cycle 1? Oh, it's Cycle yeah. 1, yes. Yeah, because so. there's only one recap That's out right. as of recording. As of right now, yeah. As of December 6th. <laughs> so so she, she, she wrote back, and I was like, you know, which one did you see? And she's like, oh, the one you know, where the films you had watched were... Um, uh, uh, you know the Jackie Chan film, Kinescotsi, and The Matrix. And I was like, oh my God, we've talked about like, The Matrix so frequently that she thought we had watched it. Oh, she forgot my movie. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, like I said, yeah, that, that, that's my fault. Like I talked about The Matrix so much, she she felt like she was there. And that's what we had watched. So I was like, mm. okay, right, I got to tone down. Bolton. I got to tone down the Matrix. <laughs> I know that won't be your answer though for this this month's. Oh, good. Rick. Yeah. I'm excited. I mean, it better goddamn not be yeah, since you yeah. like it so much. <laughs> but, um, oh, but she oh she also mentioned that she uh, there was something where she's like oh and by the way they didn't edit out the parts about Schindler's List. But <laughs> <laughs> that was the one where it was like you know getting a good getting your swerve on film. <laughs> I said Schindler's <laughs> List, <laughs> and then it was like no we'll edit that out. <laughs> yeah, well no, we'll leave it in. You don't get to cover up your that stuff out. <laughs> so but I'm glad you didn't. Yeah. But was I saying something important before? By the that? score you were talking. That's about right. Yeah. Something interesting. So oh yeah, because I dated the yeah yeah right. Um, so yeah, Mark Mothersbaugh had done um, Thor Ragnarok, and then I saw that he had done the music for for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting too, like you know, as you know by now, listeners, I do uh, themes for all the, the the podcasts, and I try to, uh, you know, there's the, the the movie mumble theme, but I try to change the the orchestration to to sort of fit the yeah. the movie we're watching. I feel bad that, that we didn't get to mention that in the earlier episodes. Yeah, that's fine. But it's there's we the, did on the the, um, the, the primer, intro? yeah, great, yeah, because yeah, there's the base theme, which we just used for recaps, and which is awesome episodes. by itself. It's, oh, yes, thank you. Which Tim made for us, <clears throat> and then there's the base theme, which he alters to fit the film of the month. Right. So if you've listened to to the, all the episodes up up till now, you know the um, you know for 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 Dragon Lord, it was you know this sort of very Asian influenced version of it, and then for Skycrawlers, it was this kind of you know what I envisioned to be this action film sky, you know, dogfight type thing. And then for um, Kranoskotsi, it was a very minimalistic thing. Um, and uh, I really well, like your Godzilla one. Oh, thank you. Yeah, oh, by now, yeah, Bond the, the Bond and the Godzilla, Godzilla, I really stepped it up. Because it was like, you know, this very specific franchise. So, With um, an iconic theme. Right, so I wanted to make sure to capture all that as well. So, so you know, going into this film, uh, you know, to bring it back to the present, I was like, okay, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, listen for something that you want to do musically for the theme you know and and yeah they have this great thing where there are all these david bowie songs that are translated into portuguese and performed by one of the characters like sitting on the boat playing pele, the guitar yeah. pele yeah so i was you know kind of like the officer pele right? <laughs> who throws a stick of dynamite into the water to turn oh, it off right. <laughs> he's always blowing shit up uh, those were great though too his apparently he's the one who Turned them into Portuguese. Yeah. As a he translated it, yeah. and yeah, and they were great. Yeah, um, great soundtrack to this. So yeah, so there's that element of it, but then there's this sort of like, you know, seventies 
kitschy. synth thing. Yeah, yeah, like what was the? There was one moment. Joel, you'll know the scene, but like this. The, oh, it was when they're going the underwater. underwater. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, we can play music in our headsets." Oh, yeah. He, and he takes a shot at Cousteau. He's like, uh, some people had said that uh, Jacques Cousteau and his cronies invented the ability oh, to talk yeah. to each other, but we added a rabbit ear so we could pipe in some music. Yeah. And the song starts playing, and he's in this diving suit. He's moving around, and he's like bulging out of it, and it's just like this <laughs> awkward dance thing, and it's just the perfect music for that. And then they're underwater. Yeah, and, and oh, and it was great. And I was just, I turned to Joel's like, this is what I'm going to do for the theme. And he's like, you fucking better. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I chose the film, man. <laughs> so so there's that moment. And then there's a really good moment where they go, what's the name of the island that they go to at that point when they're trying to rescue their guy from the pirates? So they go uh, to oh, find yes. Eleanor? No, that's no, fine. The um, Ping Islands. Ping Island. Little, they go to yeah. It's Big Ping. So they're they're going and, and there's this sort of like kind of big ping. <laughs> there's three pings. Yeah. One's big. One's little. One's in the middle. Well, what's funny too because doesn't Steve think it's a he points one, to the wrong one? Like, no, no, this oh my one. <laughs> Angelica Huston is freaking amazing in this. Like, there's uh, that that deadpan just used to dealing with his shit. Yeah. <laughs> Bailing them out of shit. Mm-hmm. No, but when they they do this assault and it's about to rain and they're doing this like scuba assault, yeah, and it's this really kind of cool theme, yeah. But it, it it's kind of harkens back to that seventy style mm-hmm. synthy kind of thing, yeah. And like, and this one was actually kind of it was actual like orchestral, yeah, it but it still had yeah, yeah, but it still had this kind of quirky, uh, like. It, like it half took itself seriously, like like almost like it was someone, and, and this this is this, like he really nailed it too. It was almost like it was, it, it fit Steve's character perfectly because in Steve's head he's like an action hero and he's like yeah we're gonna go save the day, but it's like yeah it's like all these kind of you know, guys kind of stuffed into these scuba suits that look ridiculous and, and bulgy and, and they you run know through this pile. Of water, the swap <laughs> yeah. pile, and everybody else is looking back at Steve Stock like swap leeches, get them off quick. Wait, they hit nobody else. What's the deal? Like <laughs> that, that was another great situation for real life because the the music finally fades when they find nobody, and they're just they're done. They're in the lobby and it's over, and that's the end of that. The music's done. Action sequence is done. Hero stuff is done. They're just like well. Shit. And then, <laughs> it was oh, wasted. Wait, guys, we found something. And that's when they rescue Bill yeah. and Hennessy, and they have the whole shootout. And none of that has the fancy action. It just it happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, again, that's. Yeah. You can't live in the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of re- reminds me of from uh, um, uh, 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 Emperor's New Groove. When Kronk <laughs> is supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like where he's singing, he's singing his own theme music in his head. So it's almost like like that was the theme music that was playing in Steve's head as he, they're going on this mission. Mm-hmm. So like to him, it's it's serious, but it's as if you know, yeah, like like a goofball. You took a goofball composer and said, "Hey, write something serious, this serious action cue," and that person did it seriously. But you know that, but that was like the intention to be. It's not a serious action cue. It's not a one hundred percent silly action cue. It's like you think you're doing something serious but it ends up being silly and and so that was another great moment i was like yes i want this 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 some part of this has to find its way into the theme too and yeah, i thought that was brilliant and th- those were the two big moments that really stood out to me because i mean the, the 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 david bowie guitar stuff was was really really cool 
but I mean, I'm, I'm the stuff I write is more orchestral in nature. So that, that stuff really clicked with me in, in terms of interest. Um, also, I, I tend to have a really hard time if I hear too much of the same texture. So like, you know, this, and, and it was nice the way they spaced it out. So like the singing and, and acoustic guitar, like too much of that will just be like, okay, it's more singing and acoustic guitar. But um, yeah, but like I said, it was spread out enough where whenever that moment would be peppered in between all the other kind of either electronic or orchestral stuff, it was like this nice welcome change. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really well, well done the way that the pieces were all placed together and what everything was surrounded by and yeah like like you said scott the use of silence where okay there is no action movie music here mm-hmm. because this is legit and and that's the, yeah this is real life not a movie so yeah i dug it when he finally breaks out of his uh uh being tied up on his ship get the hell off my boat and that rock song comes on oh and he's yeah like charging yeah. through that's mm-hmm. that's another great like yeah. musical moment Oh, another, like, you know, musical composer, film composer nerd is the one where they're actually, like, viewing a scene with, he's like, oh, yeah, well, let's use, see, with track three. Yeah, and let's the other, track three. And it was, the, like, it was kind of, like, ridiculous and minimal, and, and it was just kind of, like, like, I thought that was a really cool kind of meta moment, because it's like, yeah, it's a movie about making a movie, mm-hmm. so they're showing that part within it, and when they're showing, like, the room for the composer, it's, like, this little cramped closet with a keyboard or two in it. Um, that I thought was really cool and it really kind of it it brought you to it, it helped to ground a lot of the way they were acting in that sort of way where it's like well of course they're acting like this is an action cue because it's being filmed and it's going to be scored later as like an action cue in a film so it was kind of that um, it, it, it adds some credence to the fact that that's how they were approaching certain things, you know, not the way real people would. I mean, kind of the way real people would, but real people who were like, oh, we're making a film. So we've got to, you know, try to step this up a little bit. Um, so that part of it was really cool. I, I really dug that part of it. Just getting back to like one of the, the um, themes of fatherhood in the narrative, mm-hmm. this idea that it's a very confined space which they've shoved an absentee oh. father either legitimate or like he has this impression of having been an absentee father I was going to say into which they've shoved an ungodly amount of stuff mm-hmm. all the little rooms the sauna yeah yeah. Uh, but I'm sorry please don't yeah this <laughs> what was the, the uh, kitchen has some of the most expensive and sophisticated equipment on the oceanographic mm-hmm. vessel is yeah. the, the kitchen <laughs> um, so they've subbed in the absentee father yeah, so you've got or, Steve, yeah. you've got the uh, son who was abandoned, grew up without a father figure. You have the pregnant reporter who's, uh, the father of the son is married in another relationship and mm-hmm. not going to acknowledge this child. And then you have the surrogate adopted Klaus figure, mm-hmm. all shoved onto a boat in very close quarters. And it's almost like this cycle of that Jane sees in Ned what her son could see mm-hmm. could be and Ned sees in Jane's son or daughter or however that he can prevent that by being the man in her life mm-hmm. and then Steve is looking at it like another uh, extramarital relationship that he could have mm-hmm. and it's this cyclical absent father on this boat it's just really shoved in there Yeah, it's it's just that's a constant theme in Wes Anderson's 
films is Absentee Fathers and the the uh, feeling that absence. How everybody gets fucked up after yeah. a parent leaves and they're scrambling for identity and to I think that might be something that like motivates his nostalgia is that the the characters cling to these old things because they're a, a relic of this family unit that was complete mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Just, they cling to what they think should have been. Right. But wasn't and still isn't. Their impression of what it was mm-hmm. rather than what it actually was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, so maybe the 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 look and feel of his films is an intentional thing. It's not an aesthetic. I mean, it's an aesthetic that he likes, but it's an aesthetic that is part of the character, part of the character's perspective, you know, that, you know, you're almost like you're supposed to feel like, wow, this looks really old and dated. And it's like, yeah, like that's how you're supposed to feel about the character. Why like they insist views. on using yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Right? yeah. There's a lot of that, especially in Darjeeling Limited. The idea that they're literally carrying their dead father's baggage around. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, literal baggage. Uh, that's sort of happens in Mystery Train too in our second story where she's trying to take her husband's body back to Italy but she's stuck in Memphis mm. and the body is left in the airport because it's you know cargo Jeez. so she wanders around Memphis for a while with well it's just you know, decomposing into the baggage airport. of baggage in her mind yeah. you know hmm. spoiler <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's that one's on your list isn't it yeah I mean, we'll get there someday <laughs> <laughs> by that time we'll have forgotten yeah and it's not it's you know, that's literally her introduction. Is mm. she's the airport scene for her? So, gotcha. um, so in the interest of time, do we want to move on to situational movie recommendations? I'm fine with that too. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. Uh, and we talked before Joel and I did. I, I know we kind of never told you, Tim. Sorry. Surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a recommendation this this month. Okay. Uh, if you have anything, no. No. Did you want to? Great. We considered since then. No, go ahead. Awesome. You, had, right. you had a really solid. Movie. Which film do you think should have ended thirty seconds earlier, <laughs> or you know, ten minutes earlier, or or one scene? You know, with yeah. just a little bit. It just at the end, it just. <laughs> and it was perfect, have, and then you. you I have two. It. One of which is kind of cheating because I would take a good chunk of it out. Mm-hmm. But I think I've talked about it before on the podcast the Neon Demon. Yeah. Um, uh, Nicholas Vandine Refn. I can't pronounce his name. Film. He did Drive. And only God forgives. Bronson. And the Neon Demon. <laughs> yes, which is excellent. It's a phenomenal, just constantly, it's just this this anxiety, nervous sort of uncertainty about what's going to happen that isn't dread, but it's getting there, and it just pitches upward and upward the farther the film goes as this poor girl gets slowly eaten alive. And then, and then he added the paranormal bit at the end. But it was the only part of the film that was paranormal in any way, shape, or oh. form. And I was just like, ah. This was so good when it was real. When it was humans and people and what they would go to. And now you turned it into this occult paranormal actual effect on reality. Oh. <laughs> uh, just for me, that just totally. Uh. Mm. <laughs> you know, even technically the paranormal bit, which is a little lengthy, which is why I say I'm sort of cheating here. I could have taken just the last half of it out, the part that was actually sort of paranormal. The beginning, the rest of it was still would have been just so unnervingly creepy. Would have been fine. 
But my proper answer is The Witch, which was that film that was spelled the V V I C H T C H, <laughs> right? Um, uh, 2015, and that a lot of people had trouble with the oldie English in it, but mm-hmm. which nobody who I saw it with had any trouble understanding at all after about five minutes and we got used to it. Yeah. So I don't know what's wrong with people. <laughs> Excellent. Again, a nice slow burn horror film. Just really unsettling. And the acting was, I, I really just astounding by everyone involved, especially some of the children. And then at the very end, this was the one that inspired the 30 seconds, maybe 40 seconds, just chop the film right there. Mm-hmm. There's a, a bit, I'll, I'll spoil a little bit here, the last surviving character just strips off all her clothes and just walks into the forest and it just cuts to black. Good. End film. Done. And then instead she comes out upon this coven of witches performing some weird thing and then they all float in the air and then cut to black and then film ends. Uh, I was like, I didn't need that. Like, what the hell's that? Yeah. What? <laughs> huh? At least you could have left it with some ambiguity. Right. So, spoilers well, for all these films. By right. The Although, admittedly, yeah. I like ambiguity. So that's my proper yeah. answer. Just please, just... 40 or 30 seconds fewer film there's even a cut it goes to black I was yeah, like, like I was sure one. the credits were gonna roll and I was so happy It's like yeah that was great why aren't the lights coming oh film is still happening oh. and then one more scene and then I went uh, uh. so anyway those are my two answers I feel like it's the most I've talked all podcast I'm sorry I haven't been so lively this month how dare you <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my answers are kind of cop outs because they're yeah. easy. That's all right. It's, it's what you feel, right? It's true. Yeah. Then it's true. If it's true. It's true. Return of the King. <laughs> so I knew that was coming. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 easy. It's so low hanging <laughs> that it's on the ground. Like I, it's the book mm-hmm. has five endings. That has five endings. It's just I mean, Return of the King has less endings than the book. Thank God. But it's also like, okay, can we can we wrap this up? Like, you, you could have cut three or four of those ending sequences. Just end it on Minas Tirith with the coronation and done. Like, outside. Like, that... Yeah, that one's frustrating. And that's the one that won Best Picture, right? I'm still You're mad still about con- that yeah. for a multitude of reasons. I, I think the Academy really backed itself into a corner... There, like we're not like going to give it to giving the nothing year. to the other films, right. and then admittedly they can't tell the future. But then the Return of the King was the year when it had the best competition. Yeah, you know, uh, Fellowship and Two Towers stood against their competition much better than Return of the King did. Especially since Return of the King was sort of feeling very familiar by then. Yeah. That there were much more deserving films that particular year. It was more but like that, they were awarding the trilogy. Yes, and I get the, what they were doing, yeah. but. I don't know. I just I'm still sort of left a bad taste. My other one, I'm gonna try and think of something else other than this one. But uh, Revenge of the Sith, um, mm. just fucking Anakin screaming no for no reason. <laughs> like that's a good one. Yeah. Just I don't don't even cut the scene. Just cut that scream out like yeah. just have him have his pain and just better yet just even not, not, not even have him say no just have it be a scream yeah just scream just yeah. you know and then don't edit it back into Return of the Jedi come on George why <sighs> okay 
okay, it's fine. I'm dating the podcast again. Next week we get a new one. I'm going to be okay. God, next week. Next freaking week. forgetting that it's December. Oh, wow. And then they're like, oh, yeah, Star Wars. I'm like, whoa, wait. It's December? Yeah. I got my tickets today. Man. You don't have as early as possible. It's a hard one because it's like, what what movies? Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because you've got to be along for the ride until like, all the way point. through, and then all of a sudden, it's just like, what? What the? Hell? Well, Tim, do you? I have one. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, and this is gonna be weird, kind of like off for me, but uh, the the mummy. The, See, this the, is what the I one said with earlier. Brendan Fraser. It can't be the Matrix because yeah. it's something you dislike and you love the Matrix. Right, yeah, so like no, like, I wouldn't change it. Goddamn, not be. Yeah. yeah, no, but the Sorry. the Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Like I, first of all, I'm a, I'm a few, huge fan of like anything Egyptian. Like you know, like I've I've always been obsessed ever since I was a kid with with Egypt and pyramids and pharaohs and all this stuff. And so read Moon Knight. You son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have, I have. That about comic book pretensions? Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> hey, sorry. everybody, Joel really likes Moon Knight. <laughs> Go figure. Um, sorry. <laughs> but, but no, I, me- I remember, like, the movie was really cool. It was just like, like, I thought Brendan Fraser was perfect for it. Like, it's a great he, romp. Right? Yeah, like, like he's, like, I mean, he, he was perfect for that time period. Like, I almost believed him as, like... I would have. I would rather have. I mean, I know he's too old, but him be Indiana Jones's son instead of Shia LaBeouf. Like you know, like he yeah. he worked in that role. Like that was like, um, and you know, it was just it was just great. Like it was it was like kind of scary, but not a horror film. Like enough action, enough story that kind of drove it forward. And then like I remember just like the, the last like ten minutes or so or so like all of a sudden like these mummies are just coming to life, and and it, it was just like silly. And I was like, where did this come from? Like, who who was like, oh, yeah, we've taken them on this journey. Like, like let's pull the rug out from under them. And, like, and it, it was almost like I was expecting to hear, like, the Benny Hill theme start playing <laughs> in the background. <laughs> yeah, like, it was, it was like that. It was just like, you know, you go through this whole journey and it's like, oh, now there are these silly, you know, and, and I, I think the... Maybe part of it, too, was they used a lot of CGI for the main character and kind of him... You know, because he was all deteriorated and him kind of coming back and, you know, or like there's one part where he like possesses sand or whatever. And that was like this really cool effect. And then like at the end, it was all these like, you know, where it was like makeup effects, but it was like terrible. And there were a bunch of them. And it's, it, it was one of those examples, I feel like, where they just ran out of gas, ran out of money, ran out of ideas like, oh, how do we wrap this up? Uh, a ton of mummies, you know, just have them coming at them. And and you know was it the guy's like trying to read some incantation that's supposed to stop them but the mummies are coming after him so of course he can't finish it and it was just like it was a mess and it was just like like you you could have very easily not fucked this up all you had to do was not fuck it up you know like like we were there and and it made me so mad because it's like what is it tautology (laughs) yeah (laughs) like i don't know like i feel like i would have watched that movie over and over again because i i really loved so much of it and then it was just like no no you ruined it and then and then again, of course, they all ruined the franchise with all the, like the Scorpion King movies, and then the the straight to video Scorpion King movies that didn't have the Rock in them. And oh, it's the Scorpion King as a kid, and <laughs> it was just like okay, like the only reason the Scorpion King like was palatable was because it was the Rock. Yeah. Well, plus I think wasn't it like like it was in I think the Mummy Two or when yeah. they had the Scorpion King, yeah. but it was like 
computer animated and it was the just rock. his face but yeah. yeah but then they like did the scorpion king movie which i think i saw that and that was pretty decent which was fair because it was actually the rock acting in it not his just first like yeah role. Yeah. yeah but um yeah and of course you know like the the trailers always got me pumped because they would use that godsmack song it was just like yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah like the, yeah the original mummy like it, it broke my heart hmm. <laughs> a difficult one like you said you have to have been all in until that last yeah or if not all in then at least positive you know yeah. until mm-hmm. that end certainly I feel like a lot of sci-fi lends itself to be set up for that sort of change because of the twist endings or the weird directions they go in yeah. it doesn't happen a lot mm. because it just for one reason or another it works out well enough um And now it's. I guess I remember. Never mind. I'm thinking more of the book than the film. So which one? Worry about it. I was thinking about the Hunger Games, the third one. The, the end of Mockingjay at the end. End about the suddenly it's the future and there's this feels very hastily tacked on epilogue about. Oh yeah. By the way, here are the characters years later. Oh. And admittedly, I'm sort of dissatisfied with that series in both book and film form as a whole. Anyway. But um. I, I that lo- particularly they, tacked our ending just sort of mm. felt see, they I just sort of shrugged it. and went why? why is this here? I mean her taking out the new president with an arrow is mm. just yeah. a great ending right? Yeah. that would be it that, just yep. black. you know what's funny that, like I said I spin back and forth books and film both I, I liked the first film better than the first book but the second book better than the second film but huh. the second film is probably my favorite but maybe not but mm. then but the third book, I, I think I figured out. I think she was getting tired of writing those because that whole sequence with the, the war sequence, basically, mm-hmm. where the squad is fighting through traps and enemy soldiers and yeah. getting picked off was phenomenal. That reading, I wanted to put that book down, go find this author and say, write me a war book mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. It was amazing. And I sort of felt like, I, hmm, she should be doing this. <laughs> But I, I'm sorry, we're getting a little sidetracked here. And, and like I said, I, I don't think that really counts. Since that was a little more... My issue was more when I read the book than it was when I watched the See, film. I'm having that same thing. I, with a, I don't think I ever saw the movie Breaking Dawn, which is the final Twilight mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, long, it's not a long story. I agreed to read the Twilight books so that my mother and my sister would read Harry Potter. Oh, so okay. I took one for the goddamn that's, team. That's fair. Okay, yeah. and did they did they like it? Did they like what? Harry Potter. They didn't read it. Oh, that's not cool. Yeah, my my right. sister eventually did, and she she oh, liked it. She my did eventually. my mom okay. just hasn't, and it, it's. Fun. I was gonna say, the rest of this podcast will be finished at a later date because <laughs> everyone got a heavy object to get in the car. Yeah. <laughs> so like. But, they're right. they're whatever. They're not high art. They're it's fluff. It's, yeah. it's no, something I, yeah, to read. Whatever, whatever, anyway, yeah. the the ending of the fourth one is very very depressing, and it's this it's going to culminate in this epic battle, and then it just kind of doesn't happen for very arbitrary reasons. It's kind of like the end of uh, uh, Matrix Three, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, they're going to come. The Sentinels are going to come and kill everybody, and then oh, hey, wait. No, we won't do that now. We'll do it later. Yeah, right. 
So, like, that would be something I would... I guess I'd just rework it. It wouldn't... Like, if they didn't have that sequence, it would be just as unsatisfying, I guess. I guess I just took this opportunity to say, yes, I've read Twilight, and I wasn't <laughs> that impressed. <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, I'm glad to have read it, so I actually have an opinion. Like, right. Like, I know, in like, empirically that it's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would not recommend it. It took like a week though. They're so they read like wildfire because they're terribly constructed. Sorry, <laughs> Stephanie Meyer. Mm. Taking her down a welcome, goddamn pain. Once again, <laughs> as has happened before, welcome to Book Mumble. <laughs> <laughs> book Blurt. Book, I don't know. Book what, Babble. Book yeah, Babble. Babble Book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Is that too close to Kevin Smith's uh, Babylon podcast network? Oh, I don't know. Probably Hollywood. No, Babylon. Babylon's all one word. Book that's Babble fine. is babbling no, language wise. I think we're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Babbling books, Brooks. Welcome to the last episode of Movie Mumble. We just spiraled down a uh, thesaurus. <laughs> you know what we should do at some point is do like comic books where we'll we'll start over. It'll be movie mumble episode one. We'll start over from one again. <laughs> we'll do the and then, and then we'll do that for a while. And then all of a sudden we'll be like, well, no, no, no. The last one was episode 12, but we're going to name the next one episode 50. Because if you combine them all together, we've done a total of 50 movie mumble episodes. And then, you know, five episodes later, we'll go back to one again. You hear how ridiculous <laughs> this sounds, Marvel? Just quit fucking it up. <laughs> I think that's all I got. Yeah, I can't think of another movie that I would change just the ending to. Yeah, nothing's really jumped out at me. Yeah, it's difficult. I don't. It's a good question. I think maybe in the future we should like send each other these and like look <laughs> for them. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, it, it's it's been fun in the past to kind of just respond off the cuff but if we like went in and like looked into it well you always had great answers this time though I mean you both two of us had two films and Tim had an excellent explanation for his one yeah no that's fair why I don't know I don't feel like we're lacking no that's fine but you only need ten responses to every question no I just didn't want my like I felt (laughs) bad that mine was just so obvious and blatant it's like it's it's not it's not a cutting age opinion to think that those films are bad endings. Right. I also <laughs> want to sort of disagree with your Star Wars pick because that's not the last shot in the film. It's not. Stretch. No, it's definitely. a lot of valuable stuff afterwards. What is the last? That doesn't really fit. Oh, it's uh, Owen holding Luke and looking out at the Ugh. twin sons <laughs> of Tatooine. See, I can't. I can't picture any of those scenes now without thinking of the. The meme with the two screaming sons from Rick and Morty. <laughs> and Luke just thinking, I hate it here. <laughs> There's a bright center to the universe. This is the point it's farthest from. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else anybody wants to mention, talk about, make fun of? Oh, actually, I, th- I yes. thought of something. This is sort of on the opposite end of, as opposed to something where I would change the ending. Here's here's another fun sure. blockbuster story. Is one of the two guys for two. One, one of the guys I worked with, like we were talking about, you know, stuff, and and he was he was criticizing the end of seven, saying it should have been different because of it's seven end. Of yeah yeah sev, sev, seven 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 right. yeah sorry that that you know the ending that they did was the sort of typical Hollywood ending what and he would have ended it differently and I I forget I I I think it was something like yeah like Brad Pitt like doesn't 
kill Kevin Spacey or something. And I was just like, what, like, what are you smoking? Like, how is that a typical Hollywood ending? Like, the bad guy wins. Like, Brad Pitt's, like, either going to jail or what? Like, his wife was just murdered. An unborn child was just murdered. Like, how is this a Hollywood ending? Like, this was fucking brilliant. Like, this is the one movie I would not change the ending to. So I just, I thought that was kind of funny. Like, that, you know, like I said, the opposite end of it. Yeah, which yeah, which yeah. ending would you not change because it's perfect? Yeah. Seven. Well, Fight are. Club. Thank yeah, next time. Too, yeah. yeah, my other oh, favorite. No, Fight two Club. Brad, two Brad Pitt movies. Yeah, yeah. look at that. Yeah. And Ocean's Eleven. Boom. Boom. Three yeah. Brad Pitt movies. <laughs> and actually, the film I'm going to pick next month would be my answer. Is it Brad Pitt? Movie? It really would be my answer. No. <laughs> no. Although the guy from the the Vincent Castell from Ocean's Twelve and Thirteen is in it. Oh, cool. Um, the French actor. Oh, but I want to make yeah, sure okay. I said his name correctly uh, before I. Utterly butcher it. Yeah, Vincent Cassell. I always add a T for some reason. And I'm also obviously not pronouncing it correctly. Whoops. I don't speak French. But before I do that, anything else else? No. Anything we're good. Up? No? Thank you guys right. for watching it. I... Yeah, thank you for yeah. being it. Mm-hmm. Sorry I fell asleep like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I fell asleep during Quinn and Scott. See, it's fine. Okay, good. I didn't miss as much. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> 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 Scorching. I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I miss you, but my aim is getting better. (laughs) One night, uh, (laughs) Scott went on these great one-liner jokes. He just had like 50 of them, just cocked and locked and ready to go. And just over, over, over. That was all of them. I blew my load. No more. (laughs) That was so Uh, good, though. (laughs) We'll have to do a special episode. Special. Episode. No, this is <laughs> not a special episode, so I can't say it. Regular episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, you're supposed to say that regularly, but normally. Oh, and that's right. Sort of yeah. regular episode. Thank you. There we go. Oh, Boo. Uh, that's fair. That's uh, okay. I won't, I won't blame you. I deserve that. All right. So what do we have for the next, next one? Month, we are watching... A French film titled La Haine. Uh, translate, La Haine. I've heard it translated both to hatred or just hate mm-hmm. in English. I suppose they're both, you know, meaning-wise the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1995 black and white film, uh, written, co-directed, and edit, written, co-edited, directed by Matthew Kasovitz, who you may or may not have heard of. He also did Babylon A.D. is his biggest, I think, Western. Okay. Western French is Western American I should say film mm-hmm. if you will um, English so, language film so this is your first departure from Japanese <laughs> yes production. I, I would have done that immediately but Gushin Godzilla was special special you're so. goddamn right it was <laughs> um, and we're going to France now uh, uh, let's see yeah black and white um, it's about these three young men and their struggles living out in the what are called the ben, Benlius again I'm sorry they don't speak French of Paris uh, the title derives from a central line about hate begets hate. Uh, there's a lot going on in this film, both just cinematically and storytelling-wise, and socially. Uh, it talks about you know youth and about economy and about urban and suburban, and about different classes and about about all sorts of stuff that is still vividly relevant today. And by virtue of being non-American and French, both both French and non-American. And it's very familiar because a lot of these themes are very familiar about you know poor neighborhoods and how they compare to rich neighborhoods and 
riots and police and all sorts of things, but they're a different flavor because they're foreign. Mm-hmm. And they're a specific flavor because they're French. Mm-hmm. And even though it takes place in the... I suppose it was present day in 95, you know, same same deal. Uh, for the record, the Benlieu... Um, since the 1970s, Benlieu increasingly means low-income housing project. Gotcha. But they're suburban, not in the urban centers like in the U.S. Gotcha. Um, which is one of the reasons the film really spoke to me in, in terms of just a social commentary level. It also spoke to me on every level, characters and story and everything. So it's about these three friends. It covers about 20 hours of their lives. They're living in this, this project. And it's the morning after a riot, a big riot. Oh, wow. And one of their friends is in the hospital from being uh, in a coma, having been beaten by the police. And our one of our main characters, Vince, who's Vincent Cassell, who I mentioned, during the riot, found a policeman's magnum revolver. And so he's carrying it around. And um, I just, yeah, I'll just leave it there, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. want to get too deeply into what happens because it, you know, obviously, spoilers, but it's just about these three guys. Just surviving getting by you know in in all the different situations they're in sweet and there's I get much like I said about Skycrawlers I have trouble describing this film sufficiently in a way that doesn't ruin it for everybody Mm -hmm. so I'm just I'm just gonna leave it but this film I saw in Madrid during my European film class and it was the one that the moment it finished I needed to have it. I just, it's, like I said, it spoke to me on every level very deeply. Mm. I felt a little bit changed coming out of it. It doesn't mean you have to, obviously. It's a very bleak <laughs> film. Be changed! You know, but, uh, <laughs> but then, like I said, I just, I can't, I can't say anything because I'm going to start giving away stuff that happens because that's all it is is a sequence of events. 20 mm. hours, so. Sweet. Cool. So Looking forward to that. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be a second black and white film. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, pie. Both of these will have been films done purposefully in black and white. Mm-hmm. The other film I was thinking about, which will probably be next cycle, was filmed in black and white when that was just how movies were made. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. But, but yeah, so La Haine will be next month. Thank cool. you all for joining us again for, uh, wow, seventh episode Woo-hoo! of Movie Mumble. And with recaps. <laughs> the Force Awakens <laughs> of Movie Mumble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it happened right before Last Jedi came out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you all for joining us. If you're still here after many hours, you brave of, souls of suffering <laughs> through our voices, and we hope you will join us next month. And anything else, guys? Anything else nope. you want to no, sign off? All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hey listeners, we appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes if you'd like to check us out there. We'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official Nerds That Geek emails, which you can find on the bio page at nerdsthatgeek.com. Or, if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at scott underscore w underscore murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at joelt18. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard, and on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more.